The reading is taken from Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbours assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Sheshbazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Thanks, Lise, very much. Let's pray, shall we, as we come to the Bible. Father in heaven, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would open your word up to us. And we pray that you would open us up to your word, that we might know you better and love you more. Amen. 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 Well, for those of you who were here last week, you may remember that Neil introduced us to this book, Pride and Perjury. It tells the story of former Conservative MP Jonathan Aitken, who was convicted of perjury back in 1999, for which he ended up serving an 18-month prison sentence. But during that time in prison, God was incredibly kind to him. Not only did he expose his sin and bring him to a place of conviction, but he showed him his saviour. He showed him Christ. And so began the journey of restoration. And as I sat there last week, being reminded of that story, I was sat there in the front row. I remember smiling to myself a little bit. Because I think we long to hear those stories, real life stories of people on the brink who somehow, by some means, are dragged out of the gutter and restored to a place of great privilege. And of course, the gospel is the greatest restoration story of all, a story of broken sinners living on the edge of eternal judgment, yet by the grace of God are brought back into his 
loving family. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, when sin came into this world, God has been in the business of doing that. Taking broken things, broken people, broken lives, and making them new. And what we have before us in the book of Ezra is one of the great restoration stories, the return The return of God's people from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem. And as we pick up the story in Ezra chapter 1 verse 1, the people of Israel are in a mess. After centuries of disobedience, God's promised judgment came and it came at the hands of the Babylonians. And they swarmed through the land of Judah like locusts, devouring everything in their sight. Jerusalem was flattened. The temple was ransacked and burned to the ground and those who survived were dragged off into exile. You see the picture there trying to capture something of that devastation as the temple is smoldering in the background. So the people of God are dragged off like animals to Babylon. This was a devastating low for the people of God. And there they remained in exile for nearly 50 years until Ezra chapter 1 verse 1. This great moment of restoration when God's people would come back. They would come back from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple and to reform their ways by putting the word of God right back at the center of their lives. And as we think about this great return this morning, we're going to do so under two headings. In chapter one, we find a God on the move for his people. Then in chapter two, we find a people on the move for their God. Have a look down, if you would, at verse one of chapter one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm. And you can see the content of that decree, that proclamation that went out in verse 2 to verse 4. Let me read the first couple of verses there. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. This was his proclamation that went out. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people... Among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Here we see a God on the move for the sake of his people. And he's on the move here in the heart of this pagan king who issues a decree that is sent out across the vast Persian empire, allowing God's people to go home. And that's exactly what we read in verse 5. And the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. God is on the move in the heart of this pagan king. And he's also on the move in the hearts of his people. And do you see what he is moving them to do? Do you see where he is taking them to at the end of verse 5? He's taking them home in order to rebuild the temple. You see, God's primary aim in bringing his people home is to restore them to a life of worship. God initiates the return and he oversees every single detail of it. 
And as we watch God in action in these few verses, as we watch our God on the move, I think there's three characteristics of God that come to the fore. Firstly, we see the wonderful faithfulness of God. It's there in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. You see, years before these events took place, we were told exactly what would happen. God spoke clearly through the prophet Jeremiah. He said the people would go into exile for their sin, and they did. But he also promised that he would bring them home, and he did that as well. You can see the promise there in Jeremiah chapter 29. This is probably the promise in view. This is what the Lord says when 70 years are completed for Babylon. I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back. You see, the God of the Bible is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. When God says something, he'll do it, because he is faithful to his word. And we see this again and again and again through Scripture. God always keeps his promises. And you see, God's future reliability is grounded in his past faithfulness because God has showed himself to be faithful in the past. We can trust him with the future. So when God says to us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We know that he will. However hard the situation, however difficult the period may be, God is working for the good in all things. And that good is to make us more like his son and our savior, Jesus Christ. God's future reliability is based on his past faithfulness. We can count on God Almighty. In the same way when God tells us that Jesus is coming to make all things new, one day he's coming back. And all the brokenness of this world will be done away with when the Lord Jesus returns in glory. And we can bank on that promise because God's future reliability is grounded in his past faithfulness. In these verses, we find a wonderfully faithful God. And we also found a sovereign God. Have a look again at verse one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. God moves in the hearts of kings to bring about his good purposes. We see the same sovereign action spoken of in Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. What a lovely pitch that is. The hearts of kings... And politicians and those in places of leadership and rule, they're like streams in the hands of the Lord. And he meanders them as he will. God is able to move world affairs for the sake of his people. That is what we are witnessing in Ezra chapter 1 verse 1. And we see it again, don't we, in the birth of our Savior. Luke chapter 2 verse 1. In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. It's not just Persian kings, it's Roman emperors who are under the hand of a sovereign Lord. And you know how the story plays out, don't you? 
Caesar issues this decree, so everyone goes back to their hometown to register. Mary and Joseph go back to Bethlehem, where the Messiah is born in accordance with the promises of God. You see, throughout the Bible, we meet a God who is in control of world affairs. This is no small God. The God that we gather to worship this morning is in control of world affairs. The sovereign creator of all things, who orders every detail of life to bring about his saving and restoring purposes. We see the same thing when we come to to the death of our Lord. Acts chapter 4, as Luke looks back on the events of the cross, look what he says. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Herod the king, Pilate the Roman governor, and the people, they meet together intentionally to conspire against the Lord to to kill him. But you see what you read in verse 28? They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God is in control of every single detail of life, even the darkest moments, the very depths of the cross, the greatest act of evil, the greatest act suffering that has ever been experienced by anybody. At the hands of wicked men, even there we see the Lord God in control. It was meant for evil. But God intended it for good. And from that conspiracy, that group of people that met, that led to the death of the Lord Jesus, we see the greatest good imaginable. The salvation of countless souls. God is faithful to his promises. We can bank on him. And he's sovereign over every detail of life. And then thirdly, we see the generosity of God. Have a look at verse 4. This is the last part of the the proclamation that Cyrus sent out, verse 4. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Not only does the Lord move in the heart of Cyrus to allow God's people to go home, But in this decree, he says, all the other nations amongst which they're living should give them stuff to go back with. Do you hear the echoes there of the first exodus? When God's people leave Egypt with hands full of Egyptian goodies. Because you see, what we have here is a second exodus where God once again delivers his people from exile, from judgment, in order to shower them with Goodness, it is a picture of God's remarkable generosity towards undeserving sinners like us. And it's a generosity that finds itself climax in the giving of God. For God so loved this world that he gave. God gave and he gave and he gave and he gave what was most precious to himself. He gave his one and only son to bear the wrath of Almighty God because of our sin in our place. God is a bountiful God, generous beyond what we can understand, faithful to his promises and sovereign over every detail of life. And if that wasn't enough, then look at verse 7. Moreover, in addition to that, King Cyrus 
brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. What Nebuchadnezzar carries away, Cyrus brings back. What was lost in judgment when Babylon invaded the land of Judah and Jerusalem is brought back under the sway of God's sovereign hand. As one commentator said, the sovereign hand of God is seen in the delicious details of the text. That's why in verse 9 and 10 you get that detailed list of articles that have been returned. Reads like a gift list, doesn't it, at a royal wedding. But it's far more important than that. It is a picture of full restoration. God is restoring Israel to her home, to her temple, and to her worship. In Ezra chapter 1, we find a God on the move for his people. Faithful, sovereign, and generous. And then in Ezra chapter 2, we find a people on the move for their God. Have a look down at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles who Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town. Who are these people there mentioned in verse 1 that went up to Jerusalem? Well, it's those mentioned in chapter 1, verse 5. Everyone whose heart God moved, all 42,360 of them. And what follows then in verse 2 is a list of those who returned. The leaders in verse 2. We get the general mass of people in verse 3 to 35, split into family name and, and location of where they came from. And then the temple workers in verse 36 to 58. And you see, if you're anything like me, you've got a tendency, I think, probably to skip over sections like this in the Bible, lists of names and dates and numbers and chronologies, and we just go, and we push it to one side and we move on. But I think to do that is to miss out on something incredibly important that the Lord wants to teach us in these verses. All scripture is God-breathed, right? 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all scripture God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man and the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that includes every single word in Ezra chapter 2. These names and places and job descriptions have been breathed out by God for our good. And therefore we need to think carefully about them. And as we do, I think there's two things probably that seem to stand out. Firstly, we see that this faithful remnant who return are committed to worship. And we know that because the five job descriptions you see there in the list are all connected to temple worship. Do you see that? Verse 36, we have the priests who were set aside to represent God to the people and the people to God. Then in verse 40, we have the Levites who were set aside to minister at the temple in all sorts of different ways. Then verse 41, we have the musicians who played an important part in the corporate worship of God's people. Verse 42, we have the gatekeepers of the temple. Verse 43, we have the temple servants. Interesting, isn't it, that there's no mention there of, of stonemasons and carpenters and metal workers 
Those trades, of course, would have been crucial, wouldn't they, when it came to rebuilding the temple? And we assume those skills are included in the mass of people that went back. But the author does not highlight them because he does not want us to focus on the physical building. He wants us to focus on what happened there, which is worship. And it's the same today, isn't it? Thankful for a good building, but we don't want to focus on the building and the infrastructure. That's not the church. The church is a gathering of worshipping people whose chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's exactly what we'll see in this faithful remnant over these next few weeks. And of course, it's what we long for ourselves, isn't it? We want to be a people committed to worship. Not just on a Sunday morning, but in all of life. We don't divide up our life and say that bit's for God and that bit's for work and that bit's for home and that bit's for friends. It's all for the Lord. Fully committed in worship to the one who is committed to restoring us to a place of unimaginable glory. Firstly, the faithful remnants were committed to worship. And secondly, we see that they were committed to purity. And look at verse 59. The following came up from the towns of Telmalah, Telhash, Akarub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. And again in verse 62, these searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. You see, those who served in the temple as part of the priesthood had to prove that their lineage went all the way back to Aaron. And if they couldn't prove it, then they couldn't serve in that capacity. What we have here is a picture of Israel at her best, committed fully to the law of the Lord and committed to a life of purity. Sadly, as we'll see towards the end of this book, it's a commitment that fades once God's people are re-established in the land. But for now, they do what is right. The law mattered to Israel in this moment. And it should matter to us because it matters to Jesus. Do you remember those precious words from Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, let me read them to you. Do not think, says Jesus, that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And as you read on in that chapter, you'll see Jesus takes us to an even deeper place of understanding. He's not just concerned about external purity. He's concerned about the purity of the heart. Purity matters to Jesus Christ. And it should matter to us as well and so there we have it Ezra chapter 1 we find God on the move for his people faithful sovereign and generous then in Ezra chapter 2 we find a people on the move for their God a people who are committed to worship and a people who are committed to purity I guess the question for you this morning is do you see yourselves in that faithful remnant Are we too committed to a life of worship? Are we too committed to a life of purity? Or to put it another way, what does it look like for you this morning to return, as the people did, to return to the Lord with a renewed appetite for him, a renewed commitment to prayer? 
to fall on your knees at the start of the day and pray for the grace of God to sustain every single step. A renewed commitment to home groups, small groups, prayer triplets where you look each other in the eye, you love each other and you hold each other accountable to living for Jesus. A renewed commitment to the Lord's day. That we don't just give him an hour and a half in the morning. It's his day. We set the whole day aside as special unto the Lord. A renewed commitment to personal evangelism. To be courageous for the Lord Jesus. To speak the, the gospel into, into the world in which we live. A renewed commitment to fighting sin in our hearts like we've never fought it before by the grace of God. And a renewed commitment to putting the Lord Jesus at the center of your very existence. And every decision that you make. God is on the move for his people. I wonder are we on the move for our God? When you take a moment to ask yourself that question and to reflect. And then we're going to come to the Lord's table together.